We are starting in Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom, and also in a written, written edict declared, Thus says the king of Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. The heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit had stirred got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours aided them with silver vessels, with gold, with goods, with animals and with valuable gifts, besides all that was freely offered. King Cyrus himself brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. On to chapter 4, verse 1. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of their families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Esrahaddon of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in the building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. On to chapter 6, verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, son of Idhu. They finished their building by command of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus, Darius, and King Azertskis of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Continuing in Ezra, we're in chapter 9, verse 1. 
After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Thus the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the officials and the leaders have led the way. When I heard this, I tore my garment and my mantle and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. On to verse 12. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, so that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. The people also wept bitterly. Sicaniah, son of Jehael, and the descendants of Elam, addressed Ezra, saying, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, and even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Take action, for it is your duty and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Chapter 10, verse 9. Then all the people of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month. All the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have trespassed and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. On to verse 44. All these had married foreign women and they sent them away with their children. And then we go to Revelation chapter 11 verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah 
and he will reign forever and ever. Then the 24 elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, singing, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, and you have taken your great power and begun to reign. I want my country back. It's become something of a rallying cry in recent months, certainly, from Scotland to Brexit to Trump, the desire for land to have and to hold till death us do part is firmly back in vogue, although I suspect it's never really gone away. From Islamic State to the Englishman whose home is his castle, from Palestine to the Ukraine, the idea that this particular patch on the surface of God's green earth should belong to me and mine is a compelling narrative that drives everything from war and terrorism to oppressive dictatorships to the capitalist system we all live by. The idea that land ownership can be defined within a hierarchical system of tenure which ascends from the individual via the family and the tribe to the homeland is fundamental to our understanding, certainly, of the post-feudal nation-state. And you only have to look at the hell that breaks loose wherever people are required to live across borders that are not of their choosing or making to see how wedded our human societies are to the land which we live on, the land which gives us life. And the thing about land ownership, of course, is that it's a multi-generational issue. You don't change these things overnight because there's always an ideology at play behind whichever individual or family or corporation has actually got their name on the title deed at any given moment in time. So, for example, whilst it may be perfectly acceptable to us for a member of the English landed gentry, say the Duke of Westminster, to own most of the land on which the better parts of London are built, it's deemed less acceptable, perhaps, for foreign investors to buy up large tracts of prime real estate over in the former Docklands with a view to long-term profit from what is now referred to as our land. And so we come to slogans such as, I want my country back. And the question of whether such a sentiment, however heartfelt, can ever be enacted in any meaningful way remains moot. The thing is, many of today's most divisive political issues revolve around land ownership. And they have their roots firmly in the past. So if you want to understand Brexit or Trump or Scottish nationalism or ISIS or the Palestinian problem, then you have to go back a very long way into the history of why we are where we are and why certain people feel so entitled to their territorial assertions. People may forget the details, but the grudges remain. And the sense of prerogative for my nation, coupled with the sense of fear and frustration when it feels as if someone is taking my country away from me, lies behind much of our experience of the world. And it's not all about skin color, of course. 
although that can be one of the most enduring and vicious forms of segregation. It's more usually about land, who owns it, money, who has it, and power, who wields it. And these are multi-generational issues, as I said. They echo down through civilizations, creating the context within which each rising generation will stake their own claim on the world. And in all of this, who your parents are continues to matter very much indeed. If your parents were blue-collar steel or textile workers from the Deep South, who saw their jobs disappear during the 20th century because of overseas manufacturing and immigrant labor markets, then you may well be voting for Donald Trump in the hope that he will make your country great again. The irony, of course, here is that Trump himself is hardly the personification of the defender of the working man. If anything, he's the exact opposite. He's the landowner who represents the vested interests of entrenched power and inherited wealth. But at least he's an American landowner. And unlike, and, sorry, and rather like the Grosvenor Estates here in London, British born and bred, Trump represents an em embodiment of the all-American dream, which is compelling to those who desire an opportunity for a better life and are frustrated because they feel as if someone else is taking it from them. That which we call neoliberalism, the free market economic model that's prevailed in the Western world primarily since the Second World War, has, it seems to me, largely failed in its aim of reducing social inequality and controlling the monopolization of production through competition and reduced regulation. And I want to suggest that this is because neoliberalism is just the latest manifestation of an ancient story of control, which is based on land and money and power. The rhetoric of the free market simply created a situation in which the rich have remained rich and where the land has remained centralized into the ownership of those who inherited the power to assert their rights over it. And this is where I want us to turn for a few minutes to the story of Ezra and the story of the rebuilding of the temple. Because I think this ancient story, from a land far away, helps unmask the deep systems of domination in human society that continue to make their presence very felt in the world that we find ourselves living in with all of its complexities. So firstly, a bit of the backstory. If you were here last week, you may remember that I was uh, speaking about the building of the first temple by Solomon. We're in a series on biblical buildings at the moment, if you want a bit of context for this. We thought we're, we're knocking our own building around a bit, so let's have a look at some buildings in the Bible as we think this through. So last week I was speaking about the building of the first temple by Solomon, uh, which he built as a religious symbol for the political unification of the land of Israel that had occurred during the reign of his father, King David. That story tells us that King David had succeeded where all other Jewish rulers before him had failed, by uniting the disparate tribes of the Jewish people into one nation with one king and one border. In many ways, David was for the Jews what King Arthur is for the English. A mythical figure of old who sets the ideology of the nation and defines for future generations what it means to be part of this people. Well, Solomon's temple was part of that narrative. It cemented the relationship between the house of David and the so-called God of Israel. 
However, the story goes on that David's political union of the lands didn't last. It was already starting to fragment by the time we get to Solomon, hence his grand building project to unite the people, because there's nothing like a building project to get everybody united. Well, after about 250 years, so the story goes, the Assyrians conquered the northern part of the land of Israel. The year by now is about 740 BC, if you're interested. And then about a century and a bit after that, the Babylonians came in and they conquered the south. And they destroyed Solomon's temple and carried the king and the ruling elite off to exile in Babylon. That's in about 587 BC, if you're following your timeline. They counted backwards in those days. Confusing, isn't it? The Babylonian exile lasted for about 50 years before the political situation shifted in Babylon with the great city itself falling to one Persian king, Cyrus, who it turned out had a different policy with regards to the exiled and displaced peoples. If I ever take you on my biblical studies tour of the British Museum around the corner, one of the things I will show you is a, is a little uh, piece of stone about that kind of size. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it contains some information from the area at the time recording Cyrus's policy of returning people back to their homeland. The thing is, whereas the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had believed the way to control a conquered nation was to take the elite into captivity and then pop his own rulers in place to exact tributes and taxes from the local population, Cyrus had a different policy. He pursued a policy of letting people be ruled by their own leaders, letting them worship their own gods, and as long as they paid their taxes to him, he was happy enough to let live. So just a different way of managing your conquest lands. So Cyrus decreed that the Israelites in exile in Babylon, who were proving something of a problem, should be allowed to return back to their homeland of Israel. And he sent them off, and he told them they could take their treasure with them and gave them a bit of financial support to do it, because Happy people in a happy homeland pay happy taxes. It was all going to come back in the end. And he told them they could rebuild their temple and resume the worshipping of their God in Jerusalem. This is the temple that Solomon had built, that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, and Cyrus says they can rebuild it. And this is where our reading today from the book of Ezra picks up the story. Now, the book of Ezra is a book that's written firmly from the perspective of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Jews, which had Jerusalem as its capital city. And it's also a story that is clearly written to justify ownership of the land. Ezra is history being written by the victors, as history almost always is. It's telling the story of how they got there in such a way as to legitimate their situation. So the returning Jews, according to the story of Ezra, rebuilt their temple and assumed power in the land. And Ezra's the story of how they did it. But there are enough glimpses in this story of the darkness of that time for us to recover from it what a terrible price had to be paid for this ideology of land ownership to reassert itself. The thing is, those returning to the land were not the same people as those who had left it 50 years previously. We're talking two generations here, and in much the same way that the New York Irish are more Irish than the Irish, 
So the Jews returning from Babylon were more Jewish, by a certain definition of Jewishness, than those who had remained behind in the land. You see, the Jews in exile had been busy constructing a national and religious identity for themselves. Many of the books of the Bible that make up what we might call the Jewish history were actually written by the Jews in exile in Babylon. So from the creation stories of Genesis being clearly redrafted versions of the Babylonian creation myths, to the stories of the rise of the nation under the judges and the political unity achieved by King David and his successors, these are stories that were written in exile to sustain and create a specific vision of national belonging. In a time when the land itself was under occupation and the people writing the stories were in exile. We may never know what historical echoes lie behind these stories, but it was these narratives of identity that came to be true for the Jews who returned from exile. Did King David ever actually exist as a historical character? Who knows? Quite possibly he didn't. But that doesn't matter because the stories about him defined a nation and a culture. In much the same way that the stories about Arthur came to define what it meant to be English in our own period of global imperial dominance, so those returning to the land at the end of the exile did so with a vision before them defined by the stories that they had come to tell about their ancestry. And it was a vision of national purity, a vision of what it would mean for them to worship their God in their temple with their king on the throne in their land. They returned with a very definite agenda. They were getting their country back. And it was Ezra's job to deliver. It was Ezra's job to make it happen. He was the leader tasked with enacting this decision to return the exiles to the land that they believed was theirs. And I can almost hear him assuring the returners that return means return. Of course, this doesn't mean that the implications of the decision to return had been fully thought through in advance. God forgive one would ever do that. Um, some of this was going to have to be worked out on the hoof, so to speak, such as the thorny issue of those already living in the land, who might also have thought that they too had a claim on the land that they lived in, and indeed a claim on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they'd been happily worshipping all these years whilst the exiles were off in exile. The land that Ezra and the returnees came back to was not empty. It was inhabited by the descendants of those who had been left on the land by the Babylonians. But when these locals asked if they could join in all the fun, saying that they'd been faithfully worshipping God through all the years of Babylonian invasion and that they'd like to help with the rebuilding of the temple, please, they're dismissed as adversaries. They are made into enemies. That's the way Ezra tells the story. And so the ethnic segregation begins, and two groups of people with two different cultures both felt they had a claim to the same piece of land. I don't know. Let's call them the Palestinians who'd lived in the land of Palestine, and the Israelis 
who came back to take the land for themselves, just for the sake of argument. But Ezra's vision of radical ethnic purity doesn't end there. And we meet in the book that bears his name this heartbreaking story of the fate of those among the returners who had married local women and had children by them. There had been at least the beginnings here of some kind of genuine multiculturalism with, with families breaking down barriers across tribes and people beginning to learn to live in the land together to the extent that they might intermarry. Clearly, during the exile, the pressure not to marry out of the Jewish clan had been crucial to the exiled Jews' ability to remain distinctive. Much as some immigrant groups in our own country today might frown upon those who seek to marry out of their own ethnic group. But once they'd returned to the land at the end of their exile, clearly some of the men had decided that their distant cousins who had remained in the land were more relative than stranger and had married and had children. An analogy might be, I don't know, 50 years from now, the Syrian refugees to Europe finally being able to return to a rebuilt Aleppo. Or diaspora Jews in the 1950s being encouraged to return to a newly created homeland. It's the same story. It's told over and over again in human history as people are displaced and they have to work out what it means to live in the place to which they have been displaced. And then displacement might end and politics change and they have to go back. And it's the story of ethnic segregation, of the dream of racial purity and of the challenges of multiculturalism. And there's various paths that story can take, isn't there? Ezra's answer was very clear. The women and the children must be sent away. It's horrific, it's barbaric, it's xenophobic, and that's where the story ends. We don't know what happens to them. The vision of God that we see here is a God who dwells in the temple in Jerusalem, desiring to be worshipped by an ethnically purified people. It's a problematic story, and we might wonder why it's there in Scripture at all. From the point of view of the author of the book, the sending away of the women and children is, is a good thing. It's a sign of the piety of Ezra, that he prioritized the purity of God's people, even at this cost of great suffering. But this is not the God that I recognize as revealed in Jesus Christ, and I refuse to worship a racist, vindictive God. I think the value of this story, as with so many of the deeply troubling stories that we meet elsewhere in the Old Testament, is that it bears terrifying testimony to where unflinching adherence to the fusion of nationalism with religion can take human beings. This is the ideology of the terrorist. It is the ideology of the crusader. It is, dare I say, it's the ideology of Christendom. And thank God there is another story in Scripture which offers an alternative vision of what it means to be human. A vision which allows us to step away from Ezra's answer of segregation at all costs and purity amongst the people of God and God's holy chosen nation. Did you notice our call to worship this morning? It began with a quote from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. 
The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. It's not mine. It's not yours. It belongs to God. Duncan took me to the, uh, for coffee in the Royal Exchange recently over by Bank Station here in London and uh, helpfully directed my eyes to the sculpture which stands at the centre and front of the facade facing Bank Station. Can I have the first picture up, please, Philip? Yeah. So there you go. You know, you know the great facade there, don't you? You can just see the, the buildings of the City of London behind it. Uh, if we could go to the next picture, which zooms in in a little more detail, you've got the statue standing there. And if you can read the uh, little carving beneath her, it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In the Royal Exchange, where we do our business historically. Okay, we can lose those now, thank you. In our reading from the book of Revelation, we catch a glimpse of heaven's perspective on the kingdoms and nations of the world. As the loud voices in heaven cry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. Not in some future tense, very much in the present tense. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Messiah. This isn't some future vision that we hope for. This is now. So what do we say to the ideology which leads people to cry, I want my country back? I think we say this. It was never yours in the first place. The book of Genesis, one of the texts written by the exiled Jews in Babylon and brought back with the returners to the land, offers a perspective on the earth where humans dwell as stewards of creation. The significance of the Genesis creation stories is not that they offer a competing narrative that contradicts the insights of contemporary science, not a bit of it. The significance of them is that they offer a competing narrative which contradicts the localized nationalistic view of God that drove Ezra and his contemporaries to rebuild the temple and drive away the foreigners. And we need to decide which God we will worship here. Is it the God of the creation narrative of Genesis, the God of the whole earth, or is it the God of me and mine? It's a decision with significant consequences. Ezra made his choice, and the people of that region have been living with the consequences of his decision ever since. Just this morning, and thank you, Jean, for pointing this out on Facebook this morning, I read a news report from Al Jazeera of the occupied West Bank near Bethlehem in the land of Judah, as we will be calling it in our run-up to Christmas in a few weeks. Listen to this. The rocky terraces of the Cremesan Valley are mostly overgrown and wild these days as local landowners say they have lost all hope of keeping control over the more than 300 hectares of olive trees and orchards along the sloping mount confiscated by the Israeli government earlier this year. I haven't been here at all this year, Ricardo Jurat said. Look how the weeds have grown over and the trash from the street has piled up, motioning towards the vast olive grove that has belonged to his family for generations. What's the point, he goes on. When we learned the Israelis are taking the land, I avoided doing anything with it. It's dangerous to be here now. Beit Jalar olives are known by Palestinians around the world for producing the finest olive oil. And the oil from the city's Cremesan Valley is considered to be the best of Beit Jalar, a district of Bethlehem municipality in the southern occupied West Bank. This year is expected to be the last chance to harvest olives from that valley, which will soon be blocked off by an extension of Israel's separation wall. 
While the Israeli government pledge, alleges that the separation walls route has been planned with security in mind, Palestinian residents in the area are convinced that the route has been designed to allow the illegal settlements of Gilo and Hargilo to be connected via the Crimean Valley. In July, the Israeli government approved planning initiatives for 770 new settler units to be built across from the valley on land from nearby Palestinian village in order to expand the Gilo settlement. That settlement will keep on expanding until it takes up all the land from Gilo to Hargilo, and the wall has nothing to do with security. It's simply a land grab, Jiwat said, pointing out that the Cremesan Valley is one of the few places left where residents of the bustling city can be around nature. If you want to know what's going on in Israel-Palestine now, you need to go back to Ezra and the ideology of God that is at play there. It is directly relevant the terrible irony of Ezra's situation was that the very people who had just been released from their own displacement so quickly became the agents of the displacement of others. And that too is a story that echoes down the centuries and speaks directly to our own global situation. And so what God will we choose to worship this morning? And what difference will it make to the way we choose to live on this earth? What if we live out the conviction that all we hold, we hold in trust for God, not for our children, or for our nation, but for God? What if we were to live in such a way as to be accountable to a different country, to a different authority? What if we were to live in such a way that we were citizens of the kingdom of heaven, rather than the kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? What if we were to resist the free market forces which constrain us to act for prudence and profit? What if we were to discover in our midst ways of living generously, exercising hospitality with our homes and our land and our decisions? What if we were to live to subvert the notion that we are a Christian nation rather than trying to assert it? Because we believe that the God we worship is the God of the whole earth, not just our patch of it. What if we were to live out the calling to advocate for those who have lost their homes? What if we were to speak out in welcome for those who have been displaced from their land? What if we were to seek to understand and live out before God the implications of asserting that this is not our country and this is not our land? I do not want my country back because the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof.